Greetings and um, welcome back to Intersections, where our goal is to dissolve the boundaries between life and leadership, inner and outer, east and west, dissolve the boundaries between disciplines and between different fields and arenas of human pursuit so that we can explore our fullest potential, arrive at an interconnectivity between ideas, insights, and experiences of people who have walked different paths to allow us to get a much more whole view of what it is to live a life well lived. I am delighted that today we will have in our midst someone I have such deep regard and admiration for, for being a change maker, someone who has done a lot of personal work in uh, his own transformation and then has expressed and explored that quest of change making in so many luminous and really powerful ways, both qualitatively and quantitatively in the world. There are so many powerful lessons to learn from him about what it takes to affect deep change in the system. I am talking about Dr. Robert Pearl. He is a healthcare leader, an author, an educator, a columnist, and a podcaster. Dr. Pearl is at the intersections of medicine and business. He serves as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. He also teaches courses on strategy and leadership and lectures on information technology and healthcare policy at the Stanford Business School. He received his MD from Yale and then his residency at Stanford. He is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group and the former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group, where he has led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 person staff, was responsible for nationally recognized medical care of 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on the West and the East Coasts. He is also the author of a couple of really powerful books, Mistreated and Uncaring. All the proceeds from the sales of these books go to the nonprofit Doctors Without Borders. He hosts a couple of popular podcasts, one on coronavirus, you know, the truth, and the other on fixing the healthcare system. Dr. Pearl regularly writes on business, politics, and the culture of medicine through his newsletter, Monthly Musings on American Healthcare, and also as a contributor to Forbes. It is a delight for me today to have Dr. Pearl in our midst. Dr. Robert Pearl, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for joining us here at Intersections. It's my privilege to be with you this morning. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah. I have been looking forward to this moment for a long time. I remember reading an op-ed that you wrote in the LA Times. I think that must have been just around the time that your book, uh, Uncaring, uh, came out. It was. Yeah. And it was, um, it really resonated with me, uh, partly out of um, my own experience with the uh, medical system we have here in America, and partly because, um, you know, I've been very drawn to you. Um, you know, instances of change makers, you know, people like yourself who are taking a caring but critical look, you know, at their discipline and wanting to take it to to an even better place. And, you know, I certainly felt that way about um, you from that op-ed. And that has just been further reinforced from researching and studying you and then reading this book and learning about you. And so thank you for all the all the really great, really great work that you're doing. It's my privilege. As I tell people, I'm sort of on my third career. The opportunity yeah. to be a surgeon, fix kids with cleft lip and cleft palate, took care of about 10,000 patients and families, knew them really well at great depth, but 10,000 is a relatively small number. 
became CEO in Casa Permanente and had the chance to take care of 10 million people. Knew far fewer or far lower percentage of them as a consequence, but the impact is obviously broader, both on the East Coast and West Coast. And I think of myself now in this third career, which is trying to move American medicine to affect the health of 300 million people. And like yourself, interested in a broad range of ways to do it, systemic problems, cultural problems, societal problems, and you're an expert in that area. So I look forward to our discussion of those various intersecting forces on the health of the American people. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, actually, you know, right there, I think you've given us, um, a, a, you know, a beautiful framework, you know, for any or all of us to think about our careers and our, the arc of our lives, because, you know, you spoke about the individual level service, and then from going from there to the organizational kind of level of impact, and then from there to the societal. So the individual, the organizational, the societal, and I think you know, like, wouldn't, wouldn't the world be you know, an even better place if each of us thought about our relationship with humanity at those three levels? Um, so that's really beautiful. Um, and it's essential because the three levels are so intertwined. I mean, think about that. You can't really improve your own health without addressing the system and the people around you. And you can't address the people around you without addressing your own health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So true. Now, there are a lot of highly qualified and uh, committed and hardworking physicians out there. And yet, in your case, you have moved from purely that craft and discipline of just delivering you know, medical expertise to administering it, you know, at Kaiser, and then moving beyond to this, this critical look at uh, your discipline. How common is that in the field, even if people do not progress or perhaps, you know, shift or pivot their career from the actual practice of medicine to the administering or then, you know, the societal kind of shift or change or even at a small level within their own hospital, you know, wanting to change the culture a little bit. How common is it for physicians to be actually taking that critical look and kind of taking on certain initiatives to say like, what can I do to kind of improve the level of humanity, improve the level of impact we're having? It's very hard. Physicians, first of all, work very hard. Uh, they, right now being a doctor in America is a very difficult task. The bureaucratic requirements, the billing, the uh, documentation, the computer systems that get between doctors and patients, Doctors are working very, very hard today, and it's because the system is problematic, it's because the culture that sits in place, and there are people who try to make a change. I teach both the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Stanford Graduate School of Medicine, and I have people in my business school classes from the university uh, who are wanting to be able to make that leap. But first of all, remember, it takes about a decade of intense training to become a physician between medical school and residency. Uh, you give up most of your 20s to do that. And quite a number of physicians at that point is not coming from the people providing the care. It's often coming from people in the financial world around them. And it's not that we don't need those financial experts being in the business school, obviously, I'm well aware of the contributions that can be made, but without bringing that critical lens of care delivery, the intersection of the doctor and the patient, it can't work. And so to my answer would be not enough people are making the uh, leap, uh, not, not to give up one for the other. I had to do that as CEO, which is too big a job, obviously, 
to be able to be practicing. I couldn't be on the East Coast having operated on a patient on the West Coast. But I think that be having leadership and direction done in conjunction, both the clinician and the business administrator, is the best way to make the change. And that is not happening as much as it should in the United States today. Yeah, yeah. You have this incredibly powerful story in your book about, about Sam and this uh, well-intentioned, dedicated position and then, and then what he goes through. Uh, would you be open to sharing that with our audience? And then through that, I want to kind of help us move into a next phase of the conversation as to like what is going on with the physicians. So Sam is a physician. I obviously in the book make much of the details blurred so that I can protect the privacy of his legacy and his family. Uh, he was a physician who would always ask me questions. When I was the CEO, I'd go to every medical center. There's 20 of them in Northern California and three of them on the East Coast. And I would go there that evening. I'd give a little tiny talk and then I'd take questions. And as you know, you're a common speaker. Getting the first person to the mic would be difficult. Of course, once the first person comes, the flood of people follows soon after. And Sam would always be that one to break the ice. And he would always ask me about the various measures of physician performance. Now, as a healthcare delivery organization, performance is crucial. You want to measure your quality. Are you nation leading? You want to measure the satisfaction of the people to whom you give the care. You want to assess the access. And obviously, you need to make sure that financially the organization is viable. These are crucial pieces. And so that data is collected. But Sam would always be asking questions about it. And after hearing that, again, time and time and time again, I looked at the data thinking, well, maybe Sam's problem is that he's not performing as well as he should. But no, he was, he was an excellent, excellent physician. In fact, he was the physician that his colleagues would often rely on when they needed someone to cover during vacation times. He would step forward and be the great colleague that was there. When he'd go on vacation, he'd always bring his computer, make sure his patients were fine. He could not have been a more dedicated physician. And if you asked his colleagues, was Sam doing well? They would say, absolutely, he's terrific. Until one day when Sam took his own life. And there's a lot more in the book of the details of the story. And it's always impossible to separate out those things that come from the workplace, from his own family's place, from his relationship issues. But I tell this story because no one actually ever asked Sam, how is he doing? No one ever saw the challenges that he was experiencing. And I think that that is a hallmark of American medicine. Physicians are trained to repress their emotions, to not talk about them, certainly never to admit how much they are hurting. They're loath to talk about psychiatric and psychological assistance that they are getting. And although I wrote the 
uh, chapter long before COVID hit. It's a very relevant chapter today because physicians are experiencing or about to experience in particular what I think of as PTSD. The military experience said that the PTSD pain actually doesn't come during the battle. It comes afterwards when you realize what you've been through and the emotional pain that's there. Spoke to, I've spoken with doctors who've lost four patients in a single day. I mean, doctors are overwhelmed if they lose more than one or two a year. I hear four in a single day and doctors are not able to talk about it. And I've encouraged the medical profession, the hospital administrators to bring together groups to support it by bringing in psychological resources. And I think that could make a big difference. And I very much worry about the consequences that we may see a lot more SAMs afterwards than we even saw before. COVID-19 came ashore. Hmm, hmm. Something I'm really grateful for um, in the way you deliver your message that you pack in all the statistics and the logic, but um, but then you share these stories, you know, and these stories are very heart-rending and they bring very tangibly to life, you know, some of the human-to-human yeah, -human experiences that uh, must have influenced and shaped you in your own arc in doing this work. Um, at what stage in your career did you... You know, I mean, because we all enter a profession, I don't know if that's how you feel as well, with a certain amount of idealism, with a certain, you know, purity of intention and a certain almost like naivete about like how beautiful this profession is going to be for me and, you know, this institution that I'm going to join and, you know, et cetera. And then at some point there are, you know, certain signs that you saw that um, weren't making you feel as comfortable. But at, at what stage did you feel like, you know, I, I need to take a much more independent look at my profession? People often ask me about my work trajectory. You know, how did you become the CEO? And I tell people everything was serendipity. You know, I went to college actually to become a college professor. I majored in philosophy and my hero, uh, who I, by the way, ended up getting tenure and becoming the chairman at Reed College, but he didn't get tenure at the university not because he wasn't a brilliant philosopher and PhD expert, but because of his political views. And I decided, and I know in retrospect, this sounds really absurd, that I wanted to go into something that would have no politics, medicine. It seemed to me, when I was 17 years old, uh, this is life and death. You know, in my mind, I never minded not being good and admitting it, that, that was the facts. But I couldn't stand the thought of being someone who was able to contribute highly and then being overlooked as part of a political process. And I assumed that medicine would be very different. Went to Yale Medical School. And then I went to become a heart surgeon. And once again, I got very disillusioned in the medical world because heart surgery to me was the epitome of what we're talking about. I mean, this is really life and death. And the best, the people who were getting the most referrals weren't the best surgeons. I knew that, I was operating with all of them all the time. They were the ones who were at the country clubs, had the right social connections, 
This was not about how do you maximize quality? How do you recognize expertise? How do you make sure patients get the best outcomes? This was an internal social culture sitting in medicine. And I became once again, very disillusioned. And it's interesting that I had the opportunity to be uh, sent, and I say that by my program director, to Mexico, where I had the opportunity to fix kids with cleft lip and cleft palate in a very remote area of the country. And I became enthralled by this opportunity to take individuals born and destined for a horrific life and now be able to change that very, very quickly and found my love and my passion uh, for that. When I finished my residency at Stanford, I again, by serendipity, the plastic surgeon in Kaiser Permanente uh, had crashed his plane in an unfortunate accident. And they asked me whether I'd come for a few months. Uh, what can you lose for a few months? I said, sure, I'll get there. And I love that environment, that sense of collegiality, that group work. And after one year, uh, I got asked by the chief of staff, would I become the director of the OR committee responsible for the performance in the operating room? Wow, I said, I must be a really big deal. They must have seen my credentials now. Everyone else had turned down the job. I was the last guy there. I was just naive enough to think I could actually accomplish something because this was a time of a nursing shortage. And I came up with a program where one was able, to, we were able to both retain nurses who otherwise would have retired, to put in a training program that would allow people to move up their skills to bring in nurses on a temporary basis to fill in the gaps. And that was really the start. And I enjoyed this opportunity. First, I loved my craft operating. There's the hardest job, the hardest thing for me about becoming CEO was giving up that clinical practice. I didn't want to do it. I just knew that I had to. But I also loved this other side. To me, it was a creative process. And I enjoy that creativity, I do some artistic stuff, but this is, to me, art. How do you take a system of people and evolve it? Let them see something they otherwise couldn't recognize and then create it. Take something in your mind and help to make it happen into practice, particularly when the outcome is saving human life and improving health. So I would say this was the entire transition. I was at Stanford business school. I was able to then bring it back to the organization and take jobs. And then, as I say, ultimately become the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that arc. Yeah. It was so beautiful to hear. I mean, I'm, you know, feeling within that a um, confluence of unfolding forces that are happening both on the outside with the opportunities that come your way and the twists and turns and yeah, your professional, um, yeah, just situations. And at the same time, an unfolding that is happening on the inside where you're sensing and checking in with your own feelings and perspectives on things and keeping that independent vantage point and then making choices as a result. And I mean, I think that itself is a just yeah, a beautiful framework, you know, for any or all of us to have as we take steps in our career that, you know, purpose is not sometimes maybe something that one can in a top down way, I guess, just like no from an early age, but um, it may unfold. And in that unfolding, let's not be only governed by outside forces, but also by some inner rudder, some inner direction that clearly you had all the way through. Uh, let's, come in, let's come back to 
the uh, the Sam story then, you know, how aware is the medical community about this quiet inner struggle that is going on with uh, physicians and I'm sure, you know, a whole range of other caregivers, nurses and beyond. How, but, you know, if you focus for a moment on the physicians, are, are there, you know, assessments, uh, you know, uh, other forms of reporting, you know, through which they're getting a real tangible sense that, yeah, this is not just a, you know, general theme in the healthcare profession, but actually here at my hospital, in my, you know, clinic, in my group, there are real issues. Sure. So let me touch first on the point you made before, because I want to make a close to that. And then let me take on this question, because it's so yeah. important and so tragic, if you want to know the best adjective for it. Uh, I think there's a series that I'm writing now uh, for Forbes on called Breaking the Rules. And one of the things that's most interesting to me is how the circumstances of the individual intersect. This right. combination back and forth, the things happening in the world around you affect you and the things that you have bring out to the world. And I talk about a lot of rule breakers. And it's fascinating to me to ask the question, how much of it is circumstances? How much of it is fact? Steve Jobs, is it his personality or the evolution in the computer world that happened? Elon Musk sitting there today, a variety of individuals who I'd call rule breakers. And I don't mean the the regulations, I'm talking about the unwritten rules. And these are the ones now that we're talking about inside the healthcare profession. I mentioned one of them before, which is never to express your emotion. It's not written, right. it's textbook. You don't hear a lecture on it, but you look at behavior. And when I see 90% of people doing the same thing, to me, that tells me there's an unwritten rule, because if not, it would be random. You wouldn't see 90% of the people doing it. So when you get to the issue that you're raising, Sam's, and I want to put some words around it, because what's talked about a lot in medicine these days is burnout. Mm -hmm. People are well aware of burnout. The studies say that 44% of physicians are burned out. Those numbers went up in this pandemic as doctors had to confront the uh, tragedy and the impossibility of delivering care and often felt unsupported uh, in that process. Uh, 400 physicians take their lives every year, more than one physician a day on average. Uh, that's a tragic. I mean, there are physicians who have uh, jumped off roofs and physicians who have, uh, in many different ways, in many different forms, uh, chosen to end their life uh, very prematurely. Uh, so it's well known. But if you ask physicians, these studies have been done, they'll point to what I label as the systemic issues, the, the bureaucratic tasks they have to do, the fact they have to call for authorization for things they know is necessary for patients and the moral injury it inflicts upon them, the fact they have to see way too many patients a day to generate the income they need to repay the medical school and residency debt, often on averaging $200,000 a year that they've incurred, this computer system that literally comes between them and their patients, uh, that they would point to in the pandemic, the issue of the fact that they took care of patients without having the protective gear they need, often donning garbage bags when there are no gowns and solid lids when there are no masks. Uh, these are the systemic factors that they see. And in Uncaring, I write a lot about the cultural ones about why Sam's problems weren't recognized, why people didn't, weren't shocked 
that when his family went on vacation, he stayed and worked. What was he doing? What was he thinking? What was the impact? That's just not talked about. We think that this is just part of the heroism. And in a piece I wrote recently, if you look at this burnout, women have always, women physicians have always had more burnout than men, but it's soared in the past two years. And the, the specialties that have seen the greatest rise, OBGYN um, and family medicine, are ones that have a lot of women uh, in the profession, and it's gone up significantly. We're talking about a 15-point gap, 56 versus 41% between women and men. And you ask why. You know, OB and primary care haven't seen a huge increase in the number of COVID patients in the hospital. They took care of them, obviously, as part of their overall profession. But it wasn't like the ED and the ICUs. No, that wasn't the reason. And these bureaucratic tests, they didn't change. And there's been a problem with discrimination and harassment across time. But that didn't elevate during these past two years. No, it's what happened at home. Because we know that women took on a massive amount of added work. 8 to 10 to 12 hours a week. And now you put that in terms of a burnout situation that exists. So it's this cultural, this is societal problems that are there. And this burnout problem, the suicide problem is far more complex. And again, I fear that we've come up or tried to come up with simple answers. And in a sense, we need a much more comprehensive solution. Yeah, yeah. It seems like there is, on the one hand, a critical need for self-care, I guess, for self-awareness, for some level of self-regulation where each physician can be just uh, mindful of their own situation and make certain hard calls and choices to make sure that they're investing in, you know, rejuvenation and rest and family, you know, as needed. You know, that seems to be one one part of it. Uh, there's another part of it that... Um, is coming up in your observations around just the um, level of emotional upheaval that you know this profession has, just like any other kind of care-oriented profession where you're dealing with you know suffering, you know, on the other side, right, in society, and um, and therefore you're being exposed to a, just a lot of both physical and emotional turmoil, you know, that is going on uh, with your with your patients, you know, people you're serving. So. Uh, you know, and some of them pass away, um, which must cause another big toll, just like you were saying, and which got accentuated during COVID time. So maybe we, we unpack that a little bit, Robert, which is, you know, can you talk a little bit about sort of what will it take to get the medical establishment and individual physicians to shift to a frame which says more is not always better in, in terms of how I show up, you know, uh, to work and how much work I do and how much work I take on. There's got to be some balance that I have to establish for myself to be able to, yeah, do that rejuvenation of heart, mind, body, spirit. Um, let's talk about maybe that first, and then let's come back to the empathy factor and what that does when you're deeply connected with the people around you, but you have to like protect yourself because there's just only so much of that dose that you can take of taking on other people's, you know, mental or physical pain. When I observe actions that I can't explain, I think that it's not a question of people acting illogically. I think it's a question of impact left over from the past. I mean, psychoanalysts understand this well for how our childhood affects 
our adulthood, and it happens in professions as well. I and see. If you think back to medicine, you know, this is a thousands of year profession that's evolved across time. For 95% of the time, or even more, doctors could do very little. For the most part, they could fix some bones. Once they had anesthesia, they could take out the appendix. But it's only very recently that actually physicians could make a major impact in both preventing people from becoming very sick and, and saving them once they did from dying. And what you see, therefore, culturally, is that we embraced denial as a powerful tool. Because if not, you have to confront your inability to make a difference, your inability to save a life. And psychologically, that is really crushing across time. And that denial sits inside medicine today. Again, think about how much you give up training to be a doctor. And you've got to deny that in order to keep going. You confront death every day. You've got to deny that to keep going. You touch people in the most private of ways. You've got to deny that as anything more than we would call it as care delivery. These are human beings, and we dissociate our emotions as part of that process. Yes, we talked about the doctor-patient relationship, but for the most part, we deny so many of the parts that are there because it's necessary. It's necessary in the past. We could do so little psychologically. It's necessary today. You know, think about just putting a knife and cutting into a human being. You've got to be able to deny these things. We don't think about it that way. But this is intrinsic inside the profession left over from the past. Now, some of the things are heroic and actually glorious. You know, earlier in the pandemic, we mentioned that the doctors did not have the protective gear they need. And yet they still went to the ER, still went to the critical care units to take care of patients. They had to deny the risk they were taking, similar to the doctors way back in the uh, Middle Ages, confronting the plague. Uh, they, when they passed tubes, because patients couldn't breathe, you pass a tube through the mouth down to the lung, it goes through the vocal cords. The patient always coughs, spewing virus to your face, and the doctors still did it. So it's not that the denial is always bad. It's essential for some of the functions that doctors do. But at the same time, it's causing, I think, the medical profession to not see some of the things that are happening. You know, we tell ourselves that American medicine is the best in the world, but there's not really a shred of evidence that it's true. The Commonwealth Fund has looked at healthcare provision in the most industrialized nations. We last. We have the lowest life expectancy, five years less than almost every other highly industrialized country. We are last in childhood mortality, worst meaning, last meaning worst. And we are not only worst in maternal mortality, we have a rate that is four to eight times as great as most other countries. And we're the only nation in the world where maternal mortality is going up. And we could talk about the fact that black women have a 20 times higher level of mortality or likelihood of dying during childbirth. And we ignore many of those things. We ignore the discrepancies, the disparities in healthcare based upon race. There's so many things that we deny sitting within medicine as a consequence of that. And I concur with you. 
The first step in the process, and I've talked about this as a 5C model, is confronting the problems that exist, being able to look at them in a much broader sense. You know, I think in today, particularly in medicine, doctors are seeing themselves as victims and not seeing all the things that we can do to improve the healthcare process. And the second C is that we then have to need to commit to making a difference, to making a change and connect to our colleagues. I mean, again, in the culture of medicine, what the doctors to elevate the individual, we need to understand how you create teams, how we collaborate, and then how we contribute to improving, not just reversing the diseases, but actually keeping people healthy in the first place. This is a massive evolution that has to happen. And we can talk about how it might happen, but right now the progress, unfortunately, I believe, is far slower and less successful than it needs to be, given how much rap how much more rapidly the problems are developing. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, it appears to me that this framework that you've, you know, briefly spoken about, I just want to reiterate for our audience here, is a framework that is helpful, you know, path that any change maker in any organization or profession could could apply. Confront, commit, connect, collaborate, and then contribute. You know, I'm actually moved to share a story with you uh, just because in the midst of all of these really challenging times and... Um, you know, these troubling observations, right, about a profession that is so noble in so many regards and does so much important and critical and um, central work, you know, for society, the medical profession, to see it hurting in this way, obviously, you know, causes causes much pain for all of us. But in, in that pain, there are these bright spots. And so this is a, a little small thing that I'm going to read from, uh, from, from my work, um, which is coming out in a month. And um, it's called Inner Mastery, Outer Impact. And uh, I've shared, among other things, a few stories from some of my students, one of whom, uh, you know, was comfortable in revealing her identity and her name and, and all of that. So in this case, this is actually the person that I'm talking about. It's not sanitized. And she's Dr. Anna Pavlik, who is uh, an oncologist. And um, she talks about how um, early in her life, she had uh, a real struggle with uh, cancer uh, that struck her boyfriend and, um, and took him away. Uh, and at that point, you know, when, um, you know, his, his time came, you know, and they hadn't really known that yet, you know, they were just hoping that he was being treated. Uh, the physician had come up to her and just said, you realize that he has only a few days to live. And she had experienced that as such a shock and also felt like the physician was just not being empathetic at all, not really recognizing like the important ramification of this on her and perhaps how he should have and could have broken the news and all of that. And she said, I, I'm going to be an oncologist and I'm going to be one who deeply cares, you know, about my patients. And uh, so I just want to kind of read, read, read this quote, uh, you know, for you, uh, where, where she says um, that, um, you know, my personal experiences have given me the ability to talk to patients as families. They understand that I get it, that this is not a job. This is personal to me. This is why I am here for people from the time they walk into my office and say, here you go, take care of me. I will be there either until the day that they are cured and become part of my extended family or until they pass away. And, and if they pass away, I will, I will ensure that they pass away with dignity, knowing they were loved and cared for. Beautiful. Um, yeah. It's really bad for her to lose someone early in life that obviously 
based on her words that she loved deeply and to have that experience be so negative. It's terrible. It's a terrible experience, but it's a common experience. I think uh, as physicians, we don't do a good job of telling patients the truth. And so um, after not telling the truth for a long time, then we do things that are say, less than empathetic because we've not had the type of personal relationship that we need to have with uh, patients. You know, I have a chapter in the book on caring about the, the nine questions or nine sets of questions to ask people. And one of the questions to ask them as you're getting care is uh, what's going to happen to me? How much pain will I be in? What are my real chances of getting cured? And that requires an honest answer. And doc doctors, again, in the culture of medicine, what do we tell ourselves? Never let a patient lose hope. And I think that's important to maintain hope. But I also think it's really important to tell the truth, to let people grapple with it. Because you can have hope in a negative situation. You don't have to have deception in order to be able to uh, have that kind of hope. And the last question is, you know, when I decide I don't want anything else done, will you still be there for me or will you desert me? And I think often physicians end up deserting patients, not because they want to, but because of their own internal emotional situation. You know, to them, it's a failure. And I hate to tell uh, listeners and viewers this, we're all going to die. But how we, accomplish, how we get to that point, how we live our lives, I think, is uh, really important. But, you know, you're a master at the stories. And I think a lot of the motivation for me came out of my father and his experience. This is where I think about the denial, not seeing the problems that is there. You know, my father was a remarkable man, Jack Pearl. Uh, he uh, was the son of two immigrant parents. He worked his way through college and dental school. And then he, when the World War II broke out, he volunteered for the 101st Airborne. He parachuted on D-Day. He was captured by the Germans. Uh, he and his, he led a group of them through the darkened forest at night, escaping, bringing people back, everyone coming back. And he was really uh, the great American hero, one of them, a lot of them in World War II that the previous uh, generations had been. And he was a very energetic man. He rarely slept more than uh, four or five hours a night. And uh, one day he became tired. He didn't know what was going on. He saw his doctor. His doctor diagnosed a low blood count. Uh, and the reason for the low blood count uh, was that his spleen was enlarged and was breaking down the red blood cells. And so they took out his spleen, which allowed him to regain his blood count and his energy. He received care, though, in both New York and in Florida. That's what a lot of people do based upon the weather. And the, he had excellent doctors, both in both geographies. My brother's the chairman of anesthesia at Stanford, and he and I handpicked his doctors. They were superb. Uh, and they all knew that after your spleen is taken out, you're at great risk of developing a problem. And the problem is a particular uh, bacterium called the pneumococcus. It's the origin of the word pneumonia. And uh, there's a vaccine, a very effective vaccine against it. But the physicians in New York thought the ones in Florida had given it to him. The ones in Florida thought the ones in New York had given it to him. And my dad never got it. My dad mm -hmm. came out to visit my brother and I in California, slept in my brother's house. My brother got up at 5.30 for rounds. And there was my dad on the floor, unconscious, unresponsive. Raced him over to the ICU where my brother was attending. Uh, got him great care. 
my dad ended up uh, surviving that episode, but going on to develop the complications from having spent four days in the ICU unconscious and two weeks in the hospital. And of course, the diagnosis, pneumococcal septicemia, a totally preventable problem had he had the vaccine. And think about how many broken pieces of the system, the poor communication of two doctors, the lack of a common electronic health record, a lack of focus around prevention, everyone assuming that everything was being done right, when in reality, there were cracks to which the patient falls. It's that kind of preventable medical error that in the United States kills, it's estimated by the people at Johns Hopkins, 200,000 patients a year. We're talking about one of the leading causes of death in the United States. And everyone sees it as someone else's problem. We just don't understand how broken the American healthcare system is. And I think not only does it harm patients, it also harms doctors uh, because they are part of the being, they, they, I don't want to call them cogs in the system, but they're caught in the system in the uh, eddies that sit in place along the river and um, just somehow can't figure out how to break it down and get out of there. And as I said, I think we'll start by breaking many of these rules one of which is making sure that we tell patients the truth when it comes to what they have, how likely they are to get better, uh, just whatever's going on in a disease. My observation is that doctors think that patients can't take it, and I think patients are far stronger than we give them credit for. There is a connecting of dots that I'd like to do between what you're just saying and uh, what I've witnessed happening in the big, big broad world of business You know, over the last you know, two odd years is you know, we've had uh, leaders being thrust into situations where they've had to uh, empathize and connect with um, and respect like the kind of challenge and suffering that individuals are going through within the organization. Like you mentioned, uh, women physicians, you know, struggling with eight to 10 hours or more work at home. I mean, similar things have been playing out in the business world as well, of course. And of course, you know, people losing loved ones, struggling and with uncertainty and fear about, you know, the health and the security of their um, aging parents who they can't go and meet, you know, and all of that. We, we, we know what it's been like in, in the COVID age. And one of the things that has struck me there is um, how, you know, there's almost like a tearing of like three levels of emotional mastery. Uh, the first is one where you deny the emotions because you just cannot really, ha you don't have any language, any way through which to acknowledge and engage with that part of the human to human equation. The second tier is where you respect it, you, you, know, you acknowledge it, but all you see it for is a shared suffering, you know, a sharing of suffering, uh, that you know, clearly this is a terrible situation, clearly you must be in so much pain, and I honor and respect that that is where you are and I am feeling for you. And so that's to me is tier two. It's not tier three because... I see a lot of you know leaders you know striving to move from tier one to tier two to say okay we are going to be a more human a more empathetic a more whole person leader today, um, but that to me uh, to the point I think you're just making and I just want to unpack that with you maybe slow down our thinking a little bit and just unpack this point with you because it actually speaks very closely to my heart and some of my my own research which is there is a tier three to get to and the tier three is where you don't just recognize the pain and suffering that an individual is perhaps in the moment experiencing at a human level. But you also recognize the latent, dormant hero within them. 
the capacity in the human condition to rise above, to transcend, to overcome, to you know, to just go on this kind of hero journey where you find some residual strength within you to, yeah, just take on those challenges, those battles, that pain, perhaps that sense of loss, perhaps that impending death that, you know, at this point, perhaps the writing is, you know, getting close to being on the wall, whatever it might be, that these can be heroes' journeys. And, and if we were just able to teach leaders, teach positions, teach anyone who is thrust into that situation where they have to support you know, lead, um, you know, provide, you know, a certain just uh, counsel or guidance to to others. If we could just teach them that, um, you know, the, the human capacity for resilience is, is actually higher than you think. Uh, but it takes something, you know, it takes something for you to both empathize first, you know, at the tier two level, to create that space to honor, respect, validate what the person, but then take them to, take them to that hero's journey piece. Um, anyway, so that's something I've been thinking about. It's something that we've been talking actively with in, at the Mentora Institute, you know, with the clients and in terms of, um, you know, how, how do you evolve leaders to being more fully human in their exchanges, but recognize both the, you know, the frailty and struggles, but also the heroic possibilities. Anyway, thoughts, reactions? I love, love, love that model. It is, I think, so accurate for what's going on in medicine, what's related to burnout, uh, to the challenges of the healthcare system, to the medical errors I mentioned earlier. Uh, I think denial was the dominant emotion as you described it. And I think the coalescence around the problems that we are all experiencing is the second phase. And there's a lot of emotion that sits there today and I think your solution is brilliant. That being able to see the hero, and this is fear that exists in medicine right now, that if we acknowledge that somehow we can do very much about the problems that we have, that we actually have agency, that people are not going to solve our problem. What doctors, I think, don't realize is no one's gonna solve the problem for doctors today. That the medicine, medical problems, the medical system is so problematic for patients that it's not as they're not concerned about the doctor's pain and suffering, but it's that they're very concerned about whether they can afford health care, feed their families, uh, be able to maintain their livelihoods, their jobs, their lives. All the issues that sit in the broader society right now and are getting worse uh, progressively. And I think that that notion of hero, not the hero who harms him or herself in order to be able to accomplish something, but the person who's able to now elevate everyone to accomplish that. I think as a physician, I had never thought about it before you mentioned it today, but I think it is true. Seeing the hero in the patients. Uh, I mean, I've seen so many individuals overcome remarkably negative ish problems, remarkably severe diseases, uh, taking care of quite a number of people with spinal cord injuries that have paralyzed them and watched as they've been able to recreate their lives. I think that hero happens in everyone. Now, why is that leap in medicine, I think from stage two to stage three today, not moving as fast as it should? because it requires sharing power. 
And again, I go back to these unwritten rules. And the unwritten rule in medicine is that the doctor is the expert and the doctor tells the patient what to do. Right. You know that in the exam room, physicians will listen for about 11 seconds before they interrupt the patient. And understanding that if we can't get to a shared place, you know, why are chronic diseases, by the way, which account for 70% of both deaths and medical costs in the United States today, so prevalent because they require this shared work? I tell you, go out and lose weight. That's not particularly helpful. I have to work with you and help you to lose weight. And what will doctors say? I'm not paid for it. They're saying, well, but I don't have time to do that. And they're right. So the solution is to be able to change the system of medicine so physicians get rewarded when they work with group patients and achieve prevention, avoid chronic diseases, eliminate or minimize diabetes, uh, type 2, the type you get at older age, uh, minimize the complications from asthma, be able to control hypertension, the number one cause of strokes and heart attacks and kidney failure. These are tremendous opportunities, but they don't happen until you start to see, as you said, in this phase three, that the patient is as much of a hero as the doctor or has that potential. And I think you're describing what is going to be necessary. You know, I'm a big, I love the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief model, even though Kubler-Ross probably never said it and it was never meant to be interpreted the way that it is. But to me, what I love about it is it defines mm -hmm. this arc. Yeah. It starts with denial and invariably leads to anger, you know, that leads to bargaining, to be able to maintain what you had before rather than moving forward in depression where you realize, oh my gosh, it's never going to go back to where it was. But it's this notion of acceptance. Right. I think that people misinterpret acceptance as saying, oh, it's what I want. It's a desired state. No, it's reality. Yeah. And reality and denial are two absolutely opposite and conflicting uh, experiences and emotions. Yeah, yeah. You know, your profession is, is medicine. Uh, you uh, were drawn to being a, a college professor. You know, my profession has been business, but I've been very drawn to the professorial, you know, path as well and uh, ended up sort of reconnecting with that, you know, at a little later stage in my career and teaching at Columbia and, you know, starting the institute where, you know, we're essentially doing training and skill building work, very um, educational oriented sort of uh, vocation. Right. And um, so if you bring these two, you know, kind of pieces together, healthcare and then education, it seems to me, uh, Robert, that. Part of the solution and part of the responsibility should lie, isn't it, with um, medical schools to really take a fresh look at, um, besides training their future graduates in the technical and functional, should we also not do, you know, perhaps a stronger amount of emphasis and training on the mindsets, the core beliefs, because you've highlighted that so much that much of the practices out there are coming from an unconscious um, just uh, perpetuation, you know, of certain certain mindsets, you know, that have, you know, taken root at some point, which could be quite limiting in nature. Even, even this notion of, um, you know, all or nothing thinking, certainty, just artificial uh, conviction that I know what the answer is, or I have to project that kind of confidence, you know, any or all of that stuff. Then this socio-emotional piece that we've just talked about, this 
this questing of the human spirit, the hero's journey, any or all of that, like wouldn't the profession be just so much more um, doing justice to its uh, very noble intentions if uh, some some good emphasis, I mean, this is almost like character character training. You raised an important point earlier in our conversation about this intersection of the individual and the world around that person and how the two need to evolve. And as I said, right now I'm focused very much on the ways that it's not evolving and needs to, these unwritten rules and why they need to be broken. You know, if you look at how do you get accepted to medical school, that by the way, that's a very tough thing to do. Only one in every three applicants are able to find a place in an American medical school. And if you look at the, uh, I'll call it the residencies, the training programs with the highest prestige, that's even more select a group. How do we do that? We test people on memory. Uh, we give them uh, these eight hour examinations that ask uh, a series of arcane facts because you can't test people on common facts if you want to separate their memory ability. You've got to find the people who can memorize 10,000 facts rather than the ones who can just memorize 2,000 facts. Now, why do we do it? As I said earlier, people don't do things foolishly. There's always a reason. And the answer was because for all of history, I'll call it the 20th century, uh, if you wanted to carry all medical knowledge with you, you'd need a 50-pound backpack. And even then, it would be very hard to access it. So memory was a crucial skill. Well, today, what happens? Sitting in the pocket of every physician sits a smartphone. You can look up 90% of the things. There's no reason to, I mean, you can still memorize them, but that's not the crucial skill anymore. The ability to take data, access data, and use data. And yet, I'm not aware of any courses in medical school that train people about using this, these tools. You know, rather than telling people, take your smartphone and check it at the door to the exam room, you should have to, have to bring it in there the way you used to bring a pencil or you know, a computer or whatever it was to take your examination. This is how medicine is practiced, but we still select people based upon what happened in the past. You know, I was, I was in Spain once, and I saw people taking bull's blood and painting it on the walls. These were the PhD students who were able to be recognized because it started hundreds of years ago. We still retain that, and we need to make changes. You know, one of the things that I've suggested is that every fourth-year medical student should spend a month in business school learning the skills. How do you create a team? How do you motivate people? How do you... Uh, find opportunities to use technology. These are skills that are taught, as you know, in business school in the first semester. And yet these are skills that doctors often don't acquire because they're so busy memorizing all these facts. How do you communicate? What we know is that the majority of patients, when they leave with a complex set of problems, when they leave the doctor's office, don't know what the doctor's talking about. I give you eight or 10 medications how likely are you to be able to remember to take them to be able to remember which ones are twice a day? We don't learn those skills. We define the job as telling you what needs to happen. And then I also think the evolution across time. You know, in the past, the biggest challenge for medicine is we didn't have the ability to take care of disease. We didn't understand the basis of disease. The problem today, we have too many options. We need an evolution and change, and that requires humility. 
It requires the ability to use data analytics and artificial intelligence. It requires the ability to acknowledge the limitations of what you can do and to bring in others who are able to add expertise. These are the skills that are going to be required. The biggest problem to me is the knowing-doing gap. We know the things to do now. We don't necessarily do them. We know the ways to keep patients healthy. We don't help them to necessarily accomplish that. You're absolutely right. Medical education is now left over. It's still painting that bull's blood on the wall when it should be using 21st century tools to be able to help patients to be able to have a healthier life and to confront, and this is a hard one, limitations, end of life. We have the ability now to extend life so far that we lose the line between treatment and torture. And we need to be able to have those types of honest conversations, not imposing our values, but being able to bring out from the patient his or her and the family's values to be able to have the conversations. So there may be sadness, but there won't be regret. You know, folks, uh, if you haven't yet come across or read um, Dr. Pearl's book, uh, Uncaring, I, I highly recommend it. It is um, such a... Uh, thoughtful and thorough commentary on uh, not just the current medical system, but really insightful ideas on um, what we can do to look at, I would say, Robert, any profession, any profession with a critical eye, you've got such a holistic view of all the ways in which um, sometimes cultures get embedded in them, blind spots um, and certain practices that um, just are limiting, you know, that that profession from living up to its fullest uh, potential. And, and um, I, I'm just struck and appreciative of the many different dimensions, you know, of the healthcare, you know, challenge and um, the puzzle in front of us that you are uh, commenting on, observing and, you know, providing such as great, you know, deep insight on. Um, at the same time, to, you know, um, I, I'm also striving to look for simplicity, <laughs> you know, in, um, in anything we take on. And um, one of the things that I really um, resonated with is a very practical, you know, visualization that you offered physicians. Um, I first read it in your in your op-ed in the LA Times. You ended with that, and it's it's uh, something I've just never forgotten. I've quoted it so often. I've quoted you so often about it, and and you say that um, much psychological damage could be avoided if physicians were trained to treat every patient like a family member. We would produce more compassionate physicians if residents and interns were asked, did you treat all of your patients today as you would want to if they were your parent, your sibling or child? That is such a powerful visualization to give people. I appreciate that very much. And I, I do believe that if we did that, uh, we would have a much more compassionate, empathetic and higher quality. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me how often doctors will go around a system to get care for themselves and their family. And the right answer, obviously, is to change the way that care is provided. You know, in my first book, Mistreated, why we think we're getting the health care, we're usually wrong. I talk about four pillars. And I think it's these pillars that we need to be able to build into medicine today, and they don't exist. You know, we need to get past the fragmentation of today 
American medicine is very much like a 19th century cottage industry. You know, doctors working alone, hospitals being separated. How do we bring people together to right. collaborate, to coordinate? Uh, we need to change the way we pay them. We pay them on a piecemeal basis. We call it fee-for-service. The more you do, the more you get paid. Whether it has a value or not, no one ever actually really measures. You don't get paid more for helping patients significantly better than doing something that adds minimal or no value at all being in place. Uh, the system of payment today uh, doesn't reward doctors for prevention, only rewards them for intervention. It's not that physicians intentionally uh, will do something in a negative way, but as you know, I teach the business school, you're in the business school, uh, incentives drive behavior. We use technology left over from the last century, although really, it's hard for you to imagine this. The most common way that doctors communicate is with a fax machine, an 1834 invention. My students and your students have never heard of a fax machine or seen a fax machine, but that's how the medical profession that we think of as being so cutting edge and advanced uh, sends vital information back and forth and a leadership structure. And physicians are not very interested in being told what to do and having someone else be able to create that. I mean, you teach in a business environment. I challenge you to tell me another industry, a business that can be successful, that is so fragmented, that it's paid on a piecemeal basis, that uses technology that's outdated and has no leadership structure capable of making these types of decisions and making operational improvements. That is the American healthcare system. I think that what we get being twice as expensive as almost any other nation in the world for care that lags is an inevitable outcome that I spoke about in the piece that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanna, I wanna share a personal story with you. I, 10 years ago, ended up um, having a major health hiccup and uh, it was just starting to trouble me more and more. You know, it wasn't knocking me out completely, but it was, it was, getting, it was getting to a, not a very good place. So I got myself checked up um, and, um, you know, it took a while for them to like, you know, fully figure it out. But ultimately they diagnosed me with, um, with something that when I went to the National Institutes of Health, you know, and, and checked in on that disease, it was progressive and irreversible. And yeah, basically, un, you know, um, uh, just, yeah, untreatable, um, you know, as, as to what the scientific establishment was saying. And for a while, I just I just coped with it, you know, and um, allowed myself to just uh, accept that okay, you know, this is this is my lot, this is the card that life has dealt me. And then at some point, I just felt like you know what, I I want to do something about it. I I'm not convinced yet that that there is absolutely no path to healing from here. And I ended up going to India, my the country of my origins, and um, going to the Himalayas, where there is uh, this this monk that I've known for. Um, at this point 40 40 plus years and i just i just said brother i mean um you know do you think you have any advice for me like here's what's going on i'm, I'm really struggling with it and then he said hitendra tell me about your diet and uh, the rest is history you know he guided me towards making some changes in my diet um they were quite eye-opening for me you know i had been quite indiscriminate in how i'd been you know eating eating out a lot um, at a time when we were splitting time between the U.S. and India, and my, you know, my wife is very avid a cook, but but I am not, and so I would I would be eating out a lot when I was away from her, and um, you know, it I I mean, it took two years for two years. I didn't see any 
change really noticeably. But two years later, my symptoms just like disappeared. And after that, my body just started to heal on its own. And yeah, for the last eight years, I have been both symptom free, but also the body just healed on its own. And I go back to those moments where I was getting the diagnosis in the more, you know, mainstream medical world. And I think about some of the things you have said, where the level of certainty and assuredness and confidence with which I was given, in a sense, my, you know, almost, I wouldn't call it a death sentence, but like a life of suffering with a certain chronic disease that nothing can be done about sentence. Um, and then realizing that actually there are much more preventative measures that we can take if we take more ownership over, over our life and certain lifestyle choices. You know, that's been a big, big, big learning for me. And it, um, I relate so much to what you have been sharing in the book as well about like, what would the profession look like if we, you know, really helped open people up to, at times, you know, more of a preventative approach rather than a curative approach. You're describing something that is very important, which is that it's not either or, it's and. It requires yeah. that we use the best of 21st century Western medicine, but that we not lose the other parts. I wouldn't want someone who's having symptoms to change their diet before they've had it checked out. But yeah. I also don't think that just because medicine doesn't have something that can be offered, there are not other ways to address what's going on. You know, when we've actually, people have looked at the University of Wisconsin looked at the impact that various uh, aspects of care have on one's health. And only 20% related to what happens from doctors and hospitals. Uh, the biggest one actually comes out of your social environment, whether you have uh, access to uh, housing and warmth and education and jobs and a good community and safety and lack of discrimination. The next big piece comes out uh, of the things that you're able to do for yourself. There's a piece of genetics. And then finally, actually what happens in the physician area. You know, what we know is that there are um, major opportunities around diet and that uh, people who are able to change their diet, which is not easy, able to better manage their weight, that they have far fewer chronic diseases, and within the diseases they have, they're going to have far fewer complications as a consequence. Exercise. Our bodies are designed to exercise. Right? You can walk, you can run, you can swim, you can bike, you can do a lot of things you can do. It really almost doesn't matter. But if we allow the engines to not be used they're gonna end up rusting. We know that meditation, yoga, relaxation, these are things that we need, sleep, relationships, all these pieces that doctors see as somewhat irrelevant, intangibles. It can't be studied exactly through a scientific piece. You know, the first CEO in Kaiser Permanente before me was a gentleman named uh, Dr. Sidney Garfield. And he said, what we need is a health system, not a disease system. And we have a disease system. You have a disease, I do something for you. You, you have an elevated blood pressure, I give you a drug. Everything is A to B, A to B. And what you're describing is a much more holistic 
peace sitting in place. I think if we could address the nutritional issues, the lack of exercise and the other positive benefits that come from it, the need to relax, the need to align our bodies and do many of these things, that the ailments, the lack of health, many ways often the lack of fulfillment would go away. You know, people say, I don't have enough time. And somehow when we have disease, we find the time. The opportunity I believe very strongly is around prevention and being able to take care of ourselves, but also not ignore the things that medicine does know and can add tremendous value around. Yeah, this is uh, this has been a really rewarding conversation, Robert. Um, I want to highlight that. So I, you know, like to think about life and about leadership and about the you know, human potential through the lens of these five, what I call energies. And, and there are like four of them in particular that, you know, come shining through, you know, in your work, in your career and in um, the prescriptions and perspectives you're offering. And so I just want to like close out with just making that observation. The first of those is growth. You know, you are constantly looking out for opportunities to challenge, to improve, to advance, to not like just take things on face value, to recognize that we can always evolve, you know, our profession, our, our own individual pathways. So there's just so much of growth as an energy that you exude. Uh, the second is love. You know, you just um, in, in that in that quote that I shared from the LA Times, you know, there's just so much of love there about, you know, the way we should be caring for each other as though we're all extensions of each other's family. You know, there's no reason to not bring that same level of just like love, care, you know, uh, deep, deep, deep empathy and all of that. Right. So there's love. Then there's wisdom in what you just said, for instance in how you fuse opposites. You know, you don't see the world in just a very, yeah, just a black and white way. Instead, you know, it's, it's not that the medical profession is really failing us. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's important. It is critical. And yet there are things that need to be improved. So that capacity to be able to see truth, you know, I like to call it as a diamond, you know, where there are different facets to it. And it's not that, you know, you just um, get so, yeah, attached to one facet that you you know, challenge or deny the opposite facet as well, which may have its own truth. And then you get to a higher truth through that, which is what you're doing and what you just said and how you reacted to my story. That was beautiful. And then the last of these is, um, is purpose. And on purpose, I want to quote something which I found so beautiful in your book. You've um, kept it from us till more, more or less the last chapter, which um, has a very compelling title. You call it Medicine, a Love Story. And in that, you talk about your... your experience with your parents and you talk about how for his entire life my father was certain that my mother was perfect he said it often and no one ever doubted that he meant it with all his heart she in turn loved him deeply as much as he loved her she adored his starry-eyed optimism his impetuousness and his daredevil moxie but my mother was a realist she also recognized he wasn't perfect and then you go on to share a little bit more about their marriage and it's um, you know it's just a very beautiful experience of um, seeing such a lovely couple through the eyes of an adoring son. Um, and then you mentioned, my love for medicine was as pure as my father's love for my mother. Uh, surgery was an art. The human body was a canvas. And, and then later on, you talk about how, you know, it evolved from seeing it through your father's lens, you know, uh, to seeing it through your mother's lens. Anyway, it's really beautiful how you can, you know, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that you've had such a rewarding you know experience with your parents and it is my prayer and hope that you know everyone in the world and generations forward you know has that you know that's such a great gift to have early on in our life and then you go from there to actually being able to connect that you know very 
primal experience in the home to something so defining for yourself and your relationship with your work, you know, to be able to find purpose coming from these very formative experiences at home. You know, I kudos, hats off to you, Robert, for taking us down such an inspiring path, both in this book and the conversation we've had and for all the great work that you're doing in the world. And I know my listeners join me in wishing you well in the decades ahead and continue to be a powerful force and moving, like you've said, from the individual service and the organizational leadership now to a stewardship for, you know, for the whole profession and for, for our whole nation. I love your five facets, uh, if I can call it that. Uh, but as I listen to you, uh, if I had one thought, maybe that would be helpful for listeners and viewers, yes. is that sitting in the way is fear. The fear of change inhibits the growth. The fear of rejection inhibits the love. You can go down the entire list of things that sit in play. Fear is an emotion that is very human, particularly when it comes to your health, your life, all disease, all the problems that sit there. But getting beyond that fear, I think, is what we need to do. We need to do it as patients. We need to be able to ask the hard questions. We need to do it as providers of care, be able to tell the truth sitting in place. And we need to be able, I think, as a profession, you know, talk in my book about Christopher Wren, the architect designing the uh, cathedral uh, in uh, London, about how the bricklayers, you know, the first level of bricklayers were doing a job to support their family. And the second one were doing the job in order to fulfill a contract. And the third one was doing the job in order to build a cathedral to the greater good, to God. And that uh, uh, same thing in healthcare. You know, we, it starts as a job, then it moves on to a career, but ultimately it has to become a purpose, as you say at the end. And I think we're afraid that somehow if we commit to doing purpose, we won't be successful. So we aim low. I encourage everyone uh, both as a patient and as a provider of care, as a doctor, as a nurse, as everyone in the healthcare profession, aim high. Don't be afraid. You can accomplish and your patients can accomplish far more than you ever imagined. I thank you so much for having me on your show today. It's been uh, wonderful to hear about your book and your ideas and to see how well they mesh with some of my own. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you too. And folks, that's, lesson that you've just left with us aim high don't be afraid and push i mean could be applied to any industry any profession any any vocation that any of us takes on so grateful thank you so much robert my pleasure thank you and i hope you found that as powerful and inspiring as as i have this conversation with him i recorded it when i was traveling in los angeles a couple of days ago um and for now i want to give you what I'm taking away as the big insights. And they fall really broadly in three camps. The first is just his insights about what is ailing healthcare and what needs to happen there. He spoke about how healthcare is under siege. It needs a culture of caring where we can treat patients as if, in a sense, they were our own family members. I quote him and he says, I think that having leadership and direction done in conjunction with the clinician and the business administrator is the best way to make the change that is not happening as much as it should in the United States. So the state of siege and the requirement for there to be a number of very thoughtful leadership energies and voices like Dr. Pearls. Um, he spoke about the need for more effective communication between doctors and patients, and also between doctors, you know, the really powerful story of his own father. Um, and 
in response to that story, he did say, think about how many broken pieces of the system, the poor communication of two doctors, the lack of a common electronic health record, a lack of focus around prevention. Everyone is assuming that everything was being done right, when in reality, there were cracks in which the patient falls. Now, in terms of the reform that's needed in the healthcare system, a couple of powerful lessons from Robert about how this pertains not just to system and institution and leadership, but also to the actual practitioners, the physicians. He talks about how it is critical for them to get mental health care for themselves and to have support groups for themselves. He talks about how he's encouraged the medical profession, hospital administrators to bring together groups to support by bringing in psychological resources and it could make such a big difference. And I very much worry about the consequences. Very, very powerful statement. He also talks about how heroism, you know, which is such a noble question, any purpose-driven profession like medicine can be a double-edged sword. And this relates not just to medicine, but even, even beyond. And we spoke there about the need for more self-awareness and regulation and mastery from the inside. And also recognize that there's only so much dose you can take from the outside with all the suffering and the pain and perhaps the experience of other people dying, et cetera, that you're seeing. And having that awareness and that capacity to stay strong from within, to serve empathetically from without, from the outside, and create moments for rejuvenation of spirit. Then moving beyond just the healthcare system, I loved his 5C model for how you and I and any of us can aspire to be change makers in any domain, in any discipline. And those five Cs were confront, just face up and accept that there's a real issue here, commit, ask yourself, is this something that I can really you know, commit to, that I'm open to dedicating you know, the right amount of energy and time and taking the right risks for? Then connect, really work in concert with other people, build relationships and tie-ups and understand the system as a whole, collaborate, start to find those parties who are actually going to be your partners, your thought partners, your um, collaborators in getting you and this change to the right successful end. And then contribute, you know, really think hard about, so what is it that you selflessly need to bring to the table and what you seek and want to get from others around you in order to, in a very selfless way, get to a beautiful end, the 5C model. Confront, commit, connect, collaborate, and contribute. Um, and then we move into the space of personal leadership, of the insights you and I and any of us can take from this conversation about what it takes to bring the best version of ourselves to everything. You know, we spoke about the need to gain emotional mastery, to move beyond denial and, you know, to move to a place of acceptance that, you know, these are real hurting issues and I'm really struggling and then get to a place where you've actually overcome them, mastered them, taken the right steps and approaches. So that emotional mastery as a key component of the journey to being really successful in, in, in leadership. Um, we spoke about how Anyone can really, in some ways, impact humanity at the individual level, the collective level, and the cultural level. For instance, in the case of Dr. Pearl, uh, I mean, it's so beautiful to see his, you know, his journey evolve from where he was serving thousands of you know, people as a surgeon, right? And then millions of people as the CEO of Kaiser Permanente. And now he's seeking to and really wanting to serve the whole nation, right? Going from the 10 million who served at Kaiser Permanente to the 300 million people all across America by helping bring reform in the healthcare system, right? So this idea that in stages and steps, we can evolve our journey to a place that goes from the qualitative, perhaps even to the quantitative. And then we also spoke about how this evolution of purpose can happen through a dynamic that involves a unfolding 
from the outside and the inside. Things are happening on the outside and you respond and engage with them. Things are happening on the inside as you experience, oh, wow, I'm really drawn to this. I'm liking this. I thought I wanted to be a surgeon all my life, but I find something really beautiful and almost like artistic in the way I'm seeking to orchestrate a whole system, you know, combine and, you know, various kind of colors on this canvas of this beautiful service to humanity that we're doing at this organization that I'm leading, you know, et cetera, right? So purpose can evolve over time like it did for Robert, right? By having a intertwining kind of thread between what you're experiencing and doing on the outside and then what you're experiencing and feeling on the inside. And then lastly, this idea that, um, you know, in every profession, because he was highlighting that, you know, in medicine, that there is a technical and functional of what you have to do to succeed at that, but you want to build personal leadership skills. You know, he talks about how, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, beyond just like the medical training that doctors get, that they also learned, how can you create a team? How can you motivate people? How can you find opportunities to use technology? These skills are taught in business schools, you know, but they're not something that doctors are actually really getting as they're busy memorizing the facts, he said. Uh, how do you communicate? Uh, I love that. And the thing I'd want to add to that is, you know, really the conversation that unfolded between Robert and me, which is there are these outer impact like skills, like what we're just talking about here about leadership, but also these inner mastery skills, emotional mastery, resilience, self-awareness, a capacity to, you know, really challenge a certain belief in yourself and others, up your compassion and empathy level, be very mindfully present and feel a rejuvenation of spirit in everything you do, despite the challenges that you're taking on. That to me is inner mastery. And so I really feel so grateful with the conversation that just happened between uh, Dr. Pearl and us, because I feel like he in some ways represents such a complete journey, both on the inner, the outer, and then the system at large. I hope you found this as soul-stirring and rewarding as I have. Grateful for having you listen to us today. Come back for more very soon.